this morning, we're going to continue our message series that we're calling Stuck. And all of us have been stuck in our life at some point. In fact, there are those of you that are here right now, and you'd say, you know what? I, I know what that feels like. I, I have been there before. It's like, how did I get here? How am I going to get out? Uh, others of you, you're like, you know, that's, that's what I feel right now. You know, this series is for me, and it's coming at a good time, you may be thinking, because I feel so stuck. I can't go forward. I don't like where I'm at, but I, I don't know what to do about it. And that's why we're talking about it. Now, I've, I've got to be really, really honest and real with all of you in, in this regard. Um, I don't want you to receive it as a negativism. I, I want you to receive it as a step of reality, a reality check maybe. And that is a, at some point in the future, probably all of us are going to be there. So you may be feeling like, I don't, I don't feel stuck right now. But I'm telling you, it's not like I've felt that like one and no more. It's like one and done for me. I've never felt that because in my life... I've been stuck at various times, and, and typically when that happens to me, I just sort of, first of all, I just do a little bit of a self-reflection thing, and I just ask myself, well, how did I end up here? What was it? Was it circumstances? And sometimes I got to tell you, you just feel a little bit confused. I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't, I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't know why I feel so stuck right now. I can't go forward. I don't like where I'm at. I want to get out. And, uh, but I'm, I'm just bogged down, and I, I don't know why. Other times I've had to look, and times when I've been stuck, and say, I know exactly why. It's because of my own decisions. It's because of my own, uh, you know, choices that I've made. It's because of my own personal stupidity. And I'm here, and I'm here because, you know, a decision that I made. But a lot of times I just start with that self-reflection. How did I end up here? And then I'll, I'll take it out a little bit further, and I'll do a little bit of reality assessment, and I'll say, well, all right, if I'm here, and obviously I am, then, then what am I going to do to get out? How am I, you know, what is God going to do to help me? Because we're talking about that. Uh, what part, you know, does God want me to play? You know, God doesn't want me to just ease into a, a state of passivity. Obviously, God wants me to do something. And so what is it that is God's part? What is my part? And that is exactly what we're talking about in this series. And every step to becoming unstuck is critically important. But I'm, I'm just telling you, the one that we're going to talk about today, it's the one, honestly, that I've been like, oh, man, I can't wait till we get to that, that particular Sunday, which is today, because a lot of times this is the thing that gets a lot of people that sense of being stuck. And we need to talk about it, and we're going to do that uh, today out of the Gospels, the story of a guy, fascinating story. And then toward the end of this talk, I'm going to give you some really practical suggestions that you can actually take and do something with. I don't want you to just hear the story and say, wow, I see what that guy did, and that made sense to me. No, I, I want you to take it, and I want you to live it out in your own life. Now, in step number one, and we talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago, step number one is just coming to that place where I say, this is what I know about me. I am powerless over my desire to do wrong. I'm, I'm powerless. I, I, I just find myself. And, and we looked at Paul, and Paul there in uh, Romans chapter 7, this very first Sunday, he just said, I, I don't know. And he, he was frustrated with himself. You can read that. He's like, I don't know why I do what I do. He said, there are things I know I should be doing, and those are the things that I don't do. I know I should, but I don't. And then I looked in this direction, and there are things in my life that I know I shouldn't do, you know, as a follower of Jesus, but here I go doing the very things I know I should not do. And he's like struggling with that. It's like, oh, man. And, and it's, um, I don't want to get too technical here because we're going in a different direction. But, but theologically, it is referred to as this, this conflict between two, two natures. There's this part of us, and there's, this is what Paul was talking about. There's this part of us that is, that is fashioned after Jesus. We have Christ living on the inside of us. We're a chosen child of a most high God, and there's that part of us that wants to do what God wants us to do. But even though we have invited Christ to become the Savior and leader of our life, if we've done that to this point, it doesn't mean that we have stepped out of our fallen nature. And he just said, I find myself dealing with like this old nature of mine and the new nature that I have in Jesus. He said, this old nature uh, 
technically speaking, it would be Adamic nature. And some of you, are, you weren't really paying attention until that. And you're like, did he just cuss in church? Is that, is that what he just did? Adamic nature, pattern after the likeness of our original parents who fell, you know, who just came. And that is a part of our nature. And that's why Paul is saying, you know, there are things I should do that I don't do. And then there's things I know I should not do. And it's this step one. If we're going to become unstuck, it's just saying, here's what I know about me. I am powerless over my desire to do wrong. And then last week, we took it a step further. And all of these steps are important. Step number two is this. Yes, I am powerless, but I do know this. God is all-powerful, and God, and God wants to help me, and God will help me. I need God to help me, and God wants to help me. And although I may be powerless, God is all-powerful, and because God cares about me, this is what I know about God. I know that God wants to help me. And, and that we looked in Daniel chapter 4. Paul talked about, you know, step 1 in Romans 7. We looked at King Nebuchadnezzar last weekend from Daniel chapter 4. And it's this guy who's like, I told you toward the end of that talk that he was insane, but he didn't feel pain, so he didn't know he was insane. He's just like walking around in his palace, and he's just saying, man, I'm living comfortable. I'm affluent. I, I've got a lot of wealth here. I'm a this is all happening because of me. He has this terrifying dream and the interpreters and diviners and astrologers and enchanters are all brought in and they're unwilling to tell him that the dream's about him. Uh, a year later, he's standing on the roof of his palace now. He's moved from inside to outside. Look at this. Look at my kingdom. Look at this world. And this is all about me. This is for my glory. This is for my honor. And man, immediately, he just goes into this insanity that led him to this long, wild hair, nails, and on his hands and knees out in fields, eating grass with animals, if you can imagine. And later, God restores him. He comes back to his senses. And, but again, it's just part of the step. I must admit that I'm powerless, step number one, over my desire to do wrong. Step number two, although I'm powerless, God is all-powerful. Now, I want you to get down this step three, and we're going to talk about it for the next few moments. Step three is so, so crucial, and I'll give it to you, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit over the next couple of moments. Step number three, to those I have wronged, I need to make things right. A lot of people get stuck right there. A lot of people can't move beyond the place where they're at because they have wronged. They have hurt other people, but they have not yet made things right. To those I have wrong, I need to make things right. Now, each of us love to project the image that everything about our life is all well. Uh, everything about my life is going good. You know, we like to project that image. Things are going well in my life, and a lot of other people have problems, and, but I don't have problems at least. The nature of my problems are not nearly, you know, as great as the problems other people have. In fact, mine would be microscopic by comparison and I'm different from other people. That's why I don't struggle the way that they struggle. I'm in charge. I'm managing my circumstances quite well. I really have matters under control. And see, we like to project that persona that that is how our life, that nothing is out of control. Everything is wonderful. There's no conflict. There's no unrest. Everything is going really, really well. In fact, it reminds me of a story that, uh, that I saw uh, not too terribly long ago, the story goes like this. There were two men on an Alaskan bear hunt, and on opening morning of bear season, uh, there was a light snow that was falling, and one of the men stood back at the cabin while the other went out hunting. The one who went out to hunt found a huge grizzly bear, shot at it, but only wounded it, wounded it enough to make it mad. The enraged, the enraged bear then charged toward him, and the man dropped his rifle and started running for the cabin as fast as he could. He ran fast, but the bear, the bear was faster and gained on him with every step. Just as the guy reached the cabin door, he tripped and fell flat on his face. Too close behind to stop, the bear who was chasing him tripped over him and went rolling into the cabin. The man then jumped up, shouted into the cabin door just before he shut it, yelled to his friend inside, you skin this one while I go and get us another one. You know, it's, it's not, it, his circumstances were totally out of control, but he wanted it to feel like, hey, I've been there, got you a bear, you skin this one. Um, and, and life is just not that easy. Life is just not that simple. And I know a lot of you, even right now, you just want to project an image that things are well. And man, you know, I know that Pastor Jeff is doing this series about being stuck, but 
hey, that's not me. I've, I've got everything under control. I'm managing my life pretty well. But we know deep down that we are not. And we know that there are things that we need to make right. And just before we really go to talk about this third step, I want to take you to a very specific teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5. And I've got to tell you, friend, when we look at this, his instruction, it is not mysterious. It is not obscure. He makes it so incredibly plain. Look at these two verses from Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. This is Jesus now. This is Jesus. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And this comes out of the teaching that has been uh, sort of named Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, like really important teachings that Jesus does. And Jesus is standing before a real group of people, and he's given a real talk, and he just says to the men and women and the others that have gathered, there are kids that could comprehend. He just said, here's what I want you to know. This matter of making things right is so important. He said, it's like if, if you come to church and, and you're ready to offer your gift, you're ready to come into a time of worship, you're ready to pray, reflect, you're ready to open your Bibles, you're ready to hear a talk, and you're ready, and you're just here. You're here to worship. You're here to offer your gift. And then all of a sudden, there's this awareness that something is not right with people. Then you need to just leave your gift, and you go back, and you be reconciled. You go to somebody that you've wronged, and you make things right. Then you come back. And I've just wondered, I mean, did people, while Jesus was giving that talk, did people, did it just so powerfully resonate with them that there were people that just stood up and started walking and she's like, yep, that's what I'm talking about. You go, you go, you come back. But before you do, you just go and you make things right with people. If you have wronged someone, go and make it right. Now, I want to jump over now to Luke chapter 19. That gives us you know, a very specific teaching of Jesus. But now we're about to see this played out. And I mentioned this so often to you. Uh, step into the story with me. I, I know that you may have things that are really trying to capture your, your mind, your attention right now. Maybe you're thinking about something that happened this past week that is disturbing to you. Or you're like, oh, man, later today or, or tomorrow at work or this week. Uh, and I'm just going to ask you to just shove all of that out of your mind. For just a couple of moments because I want you to walk into this story. Because if you walk into this story and you, if you see how this guy became so unstuck, it, it could possibly change your life for the rest of your life. Luke chapter 19, let's start with the very first verse. It says this, that Jesus entered Jericho and was, what are the last two words? And was doing what? He was passing through. He was passing through. And Luke wants us to know this. Luke wants us to know that when Jesus came into Jericho, all obvious signs are this, that he is just coming into Jericho and he's going to be walking out of Jericho to another village, to another community. He is just passing through. He is not going to stay there. There's not going to be any teachings necessarily going on here. Uh, there's no indication that he's going to have an overnight stay. He's not going to visit anybody's home. And the people of that community, like any other community, would be quite disappointed because in ancient times, this is important for you to know, when a, when a famous rabbi would come to town, it would cr create a significant emotion. In, in fact, if, if a village, if a town, a place like Jericho knew that like a famous rabbi, and we know that Jesus was the most famous rabbi of all, son of God, deity in every way, if, if there was this knowledge that a famous rabbi was coming to town, there'd be all these kind of pre-arrangements that would be made. You'd find a very, very respectable, influential, possibly affluent person in the community, you know, who had a nice house because there was not like all these hotel options that we would have today. It'd be like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm going to be here overnight or a night or two or a week or so, and so I need a place to stay, and it's not like option A, B, C among hotels. And so most likely, you'd be invited to a dinner where you'd have relationships, friendships, and, you know, acquaintances that would gather, and you'd stay in somebody, a respectable person's home. But Luke wants us to know, no, Jesus is not, he's not planning on any of that. He's not going to anybody's house. You know, there's not going to be, you know, a buffet set up somewhere. He's just, he's just passing through. And again, the people do not like it because they'd love to welcome Jesus. They would love him to have him stay there for a while. But I want you to look at the very next verse. In fact, Verses 2, 3, and 4. It says, 
And again, you got to step into the story. There was a man there named Zacchaeus, and it says that he was the chief what? He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very, what's the word? Rich. He's very, very rich. And in just a moment, I'm going to tell you how he became rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. And we need to talk about this. There's so much here, friends. And you're going to see how that this guy that felt like maybe we do. It didn't hit him initially, but he has this defining moment, and you're going to see this with utter clarity. But here is Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, and uh, hated like you can't believe. To say that he was hated by the people of that region is like the massive understatement that could ever be made. He was hated. He was despised. And there was a reason why. Tax collectors were not... uh, fondly looked upon in that day. In fact, there were certain laws that even gave good people permission to lie to a tax collector in that day. I, I, do, I do not suggest that you do that in our day. I, I don't. That'll get you in big, big trouble. But in that day, and, and here's part of the reason why, and this is how a guy like Zacchaeus would become a chief tax collector. Because if there was a region, that region, and there was no sitting tax collector A person would bid. There would be bids that would be made to the government of Rome in order to get a region in your particular jurisdiction or responsibility, area of responsibility. In this case, obviously, for Jericho, that region, Zacchaeus had won the bid. And this is how it works. Some of you are familiar with this. Others of you, you're not aware. And I want you to capture this because it's such an essential part of the story. So a guy like Zacchaeus has won the bid. And you would go, and let's say that everybody had a certain tax that they were to pay. And for our own economic purposes, let me just toss out a number. Let's just say, for example, uh, that Zacchaeus would go to somebody that owed $5,000 in taxes. So what he would do is he would go to collect and would collect the taxation, the $5,000. And what he would do, if that was the required tax, he would take that $5,000 and he would not reinvest it into Israel. But this is what caused him to become considered not just a hated person, but a traitor because he would take the taxes and he would send the taxes to Rome. Now, here's the catch. This is what caused him to be hated so. He's already viewed as a traitor because he would take their money, not keep it in Israel, but would send it to Rome. But here's what any tax collector could do, and he obviously was very good at it because you saw with me, he became very rich. Let's, again, using that number I mentioned just a moment ago, I come to, if I'm a tax collector, somebody, and they owe 5000 in taxes, but I may collect, and I had the prerogative. Nobody could stop me. I had the ability to collect as much excess as I wanted. So you owed, let's say, $5,000, and I took that $5,000, and I sent that to Rome, but I said to you, your tax bill is actually $8,000, and I send 5000 to Rome, and I keep 3000 for myself, and I could charge whatever I wanted. People can't do that, but in that day, and that's why it caused tax collectors to be hated so. And not only could they collect as much excess and cause them to be hated, a community would look at a tax collector and would say, well, that person, you know, in sort of religious terminology, that person is unclean. And if a person was considered unclean, it meant that you couldn't touch them. You couldn't have a meal with them. You certainly couldn't go into their home. I want you to look. This is not Luke 19. I want to take just a quick departure here because I, I want you to see this. This is Mark chapter 2. Uh, it's up on the screen. Mark chapter 2, verse 16. Just so that you know how people felt about tax collectors. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and what? Tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And this, this helps you to understand. This is feeling. This is not just unique to Jericho. This was everywhere. Because everybody felt hatred toward tax collectors. Everybody felt contempt for a tax collector because they were continually 
ripping people off. In fact, tax collectors were so despised that people in this regions, these regions would like give them their own designation. It was like sinners and like tax collectors. So there's like all your general, you know, normal, average sinners. And then there's like in addition, there's like this really, you know, that's bad, but this is really bad, sinners and tax collectors. They had their own classification. They couldn't even be grouped together with other sinners. Look at this next verse. This is out of Luke, Luke 15:1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Matthew 21, verse 31, the B part of that verse, it's not on the screen, but they talked about tax collectors, a grouping in their estimation of sinners and prostitutes. So there were like sinners, but then there were other groupings that people would not even put in the category with like your normal run-of-the-mill sinner. They were like deemed so, so despised and so unclean, they'd be given their own category, like tax collectors. Now, take that into your consideration and then keep this in mind. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, and he wants to see him really bad. And if you're walking into this story with me, you have to wonder, well, why does Zacchaeus want to see Jesus so badly? Is it because he's heard about these miracles that Jesus has obviously performed you know, that's why he's wanting, I don't think that this is accurate. I think maybe we'd hear something. That, again, that's just pure speculation on my part. But if there was somebody in his, you know, family that maybe needed a miracle, maybe he just wanted to see him, maybe he wanted to convince him. I don't, I don't know that that is it, possible. Certainly, he had heard about the life-transforming teaching of Jesus. It was said of Jesus, you know, when people would stand around and hear him talk, people would just be, even if they didn't agree with him, they'd be like, nobody's ever spoke the way that this man with such power and such authority and such conviction would rise up on the inside of people. And maybe Zacchaeus had heard about the life te- uh, life-transforming teaching of Jesus, and he just wanted to hear it for himself. He just wanted to see it with his eyes and hear it with his ears. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't think it's either of those things. Could have been. Because the Bible's not clear. But I think what it really is, is Zacchaeus so badly wanted to see Jesus because he heard that Jesus did not hate tax collectors like everybody else hated tax collectors. He had heard that Jesus, you know, loved tax collectors. I think it is highly probable that Zacchaeus had even heard that Jesus loved tax collector so much that he even had a former tax collector that was a part of his inner circle. Anybody remember that guy's name? Matthew. And he said, well, you know, I'm hated everywhere I turn here in Jericho. And I'm, you know, I I think he was realist enough to admit I brought a lot of this on my own and I'm charging people exorbitant amount of taxes. I send to Rome what is Rome and I'm getting filthy rich over the excess. I'm charging them. I I get it. I'm, I'm hated. I've got a target on me. But I've heard that Jesus doesn't hate people like me. I heard he may even love them. But Zacchaeus has a problem. And you heard about his problem just a moment ago. He wants to see Jesus. He really does. But his problem is this. He is vertically challenged and will not be able to see over the people. It's a big deal when a famous rabbi came into our community. It was a really, really big deal. And so people just line up at the roads. It'd be like a parade of sorts that would be fundamental to our understanding today. And and people are lined up. And and little old Zacchaeus, vertically challenged Zacchaeus, would not be able to see over the crowd. And how many of you know uh, this guy being hated the way that he was, it wasn't going to be, and he knew this, like people would say, oh, you can't see? Well, hey, slide over. Hey, Zacchaeus, come. Hey, buddy, you know, we'll just see Jesus. Hey, man, I'm not. Hey, just make room for Zacchaeus. No, if, if he could not see, they would step it up and do even more to make sure that he couldn't see Jesus if they felt that he really wanted to do that, which he did. So he's got this problem. He cannot see over people. So Luke, this chapter in the Bible This story tells us, real story, that he runs ahead of the crowd because he cannot see from behind them, and he climbs up into a sycamore fig tree. Interesting, isn't it? Why does Luke tell us it's a sycamore fig tree? Mr. Dan 
had a fig tree. And some of you are saying, oh, okay, you just lost me. Who's Mr. Dan? Is that Old Testament or New Testament? Mr. Dan is a guy that owned a home right next door to the gas station that my grandfather owned. And, uh, you know, so we knew Mr. Dan because in the summers, uh, my cousins and me, we would work with our grandfather. And we loved it. I mean, he... He had this full-service gas station. Any of you remember? I know they're archaic now, but anybody remember what a full-service gas station is? And, and we would be there, and we, you know, somebody fill it up, and, and we would pump the gas, and, and we would check the water and the batteries, and we would check the oil, and we would wash the windshield. It was my grandfather had this full-service gas station. That's been a long, long, long time. You know, they're like pulling Model Ts and stuff. No, not really. It's not that long ago. But right next door was Mr. Dan's fig tree, the back of his yard. And uh, when we were working with our, our grandfather, uh, and we got hungry, we wanted a snack. And, man, I can remember this so vividly. If we, my cousins me, like, hey, we're thirsty, you know, this arm, we're hungry, we want something. He had a, 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 a beverage machine right outside. And so we could go, and we would always get, my cousins me, we'd get either a Fanta grape, or a Fanta orange. How many of you have ever had one of those? How many of you know those are going to be in heaven? Welcoming. It's, when you welcome here, take your Fanta grape, your Fanta orange. Welcome to glory, you know. And so it's like, oh, and, and he, you know, we didn't have to put money in. My grandfather had the keys, and I can see him, and all right, boys, line up, and we'd each reach in, and, and they would be like, hey, we'd like to have something to go with this. And, and he'd say, all right, and because on top of the cigarette machine inside of the little business that he had were these glass jars, and we'd go in, and we'd all get us a pack of peanut butter crackers, and we'd have our Fanta drink, and it was like heaven has come down. But on those times when he didn't have the peanut butter crackers and we were like really hungry, we would go over to Mr. Dan's fig tree and eat because you know how young kids love to eat figs, right? A sycamore fig tree. Why would he climb up? Why did he like head for that kind of tree? And, you know, theologians tell us, scholars tell us, gives us some insight into this. One of the reasons why uh, Zacchaeus, this little vertically challenged guy, would find a sycamore fig tree would be because of the really low branches that would grow on a tree like this. So it would be very easy for a short guy to climb up into. Not only would it have low branches, but a sycamore fig tree was known in Jesus' day to have these big leaves. So it made it easy, not just for a short guy to climb up into, but it made it easy for a hated guy to hide. And he could just want to hide because he didn't want to be seen. Now, why? again, here's the third thing about sycamore fig tree that maybe you did not know prior to what you're about to hear. There was this ancient instruction that was called the Mishnahs. And in the Mishnahs, it would be said that a sycamore, trick, uh, sycamore fig tree could only be planted 50 cubits outside of a village. So here's a guy who desperately wants to see Jesus. He knows he's not going to be able to see over the crowd. So he runs ahead of all of the people, 50 cubits, at least 50 cubits, outside of the village of Jericho, and he climbs up in a tree that he can navigate. He hides in the leaves, and he's thinking, I'm going to be outside of the city, so all of the people, they'll trail off by then. And even if there are some people standing around, still I'll be able from my hidden position to be able to see him. But what happens, what happens next is a very, very, very shocking thing. And I want you to see it in verses 5 and 6. So Zacchaeus is up in the tree. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Come down. I must stay at your house today. So he came down. How quickly? At once. And how did he welcome Jesus? Gladly. I mean, this is huge. Zacchaeus, come down. Right now. And, you know, he's glad, but how many of you know nobody else is glad? They are not. They're angry. They're displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, it says. This is verse 7. Look at that verse. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They did what? They grumbled. He's happy. Really? Me? Are you kidding? You know, I don't deserve to have a guy like you come under my roof. I'm a tax collector. I'm hated. I heard you like tax collectors. I heard you may even love them. And I've even heard about Matthew. I knew him from way back. We had some connections. But really, you want to, all these other houses, all these other people, 
all these other dinner anniversaries. Really? You want to come to my... And he received Jesus gladly, but everybody else is standing around saying, you got to be kidding me. This is a guy we hate. This is a guy we all hate. He's a notorious sinner. He's ripping people off. And doesn't Jesus know that? I mean, because they've heard, you know, there are times when people would be having a conversation real quietly so Jesus wouldn't hear them and then Jesus would speak into their conversation. Or people would just simply be thinking something and Jesus would address what they were thinking in their mind and they're like, okay, we've heard all of these fascinating things about Jesus and now he doesn't, does he really get who? And if he does, then why would he want to go to a guy's house like that? And, and like Zacchaeus is like really happy coming to my house and, and they're like, Really? And do you know what, Jesus? I do not want you to miss this because sometimes we read through so quickly through the Bible that we'll forget things or we will not see things like this. What we cannot miss here is that what Jesus does is he steps in and he receives a lot of the complaints and a lot of the grumbling. In fact, can I tell you, it's even deeper than that. What Jesus actually does is he takes upon himself the uncleanness of Zacchaeus even though it would cause him to be ridiculed by people. And he did it because he loved Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was unclean, remember? You couldn't touch him. You'd never share a meal with him. You certainly wouldn't go into his house. But Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house today. And people are like, really? Really? And why, did, why would Jesus do that? Why would he take upon himself the uncleanness of Zacchaeus? Can I tell you something? That is but a foretaste of the cross because when Jesus went to the cross, he would take upon himself the uncleanness of us all, all of our sin, all of our uncleanness, all of our junk. And Jesus said, you know what? I will take it. I'll be nailed to a cross. I love you that much, and I'll take all of your junk upon myself. So much so that when God looked down from heaven and he saw Jesus, the Bible said he had to turn his head, not because of Jesus, not any sin that Jesus ever committed, but all of our junk was on Jesus. All of our uncleanness. What Jesus did for Zacchaeus is but a foretaste of what he would do for us on the cross. And then what happens next, too? I'm telling you, you think it's getting dramatic now? At some point, possibly during dinner, an amazing and powerful thing occurs. You might say that Zacchaeus has a defining moment. But he takes a third step. I will make things right with the people that I have wronged. And I want you to see this, friend. This is so powerful. This is so amazing in every way. Look at verse 8 here in Luke 19. But Jesus, but, but Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, it's like Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything which he had done, I will pay back four times the amount. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll set it all right. I've wronged people. And his list was long. It basically included everybody in, in Jericho. And he had this defining moment. And I don't, I don't know what caused it to just hit him all of a sudden. But here he is, and he's thinking of all the houses Jesus could be in, all of the meals he could be sharing with somebody. He is here in my house. He's come to me today. And, and just in a moment, and I don't think it's emotion because he gets real verbal and real public about it. It's not like he just leans over to Jesus and says, Oh, Jesus, I'm so impressed. Thank you. Hey, by the way, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? You know, half my... No, he, it's like he pushes his plate away and he stands up. He said, I am so serious about this. What I'm going to do, I want to go on record before Jesus and everybody else that is listening in. I'm going to cut my net worth in half right now today. I'm going to give that money away, half of my net worth to the poor. And then for anybody that I've cheated in this region, I'm not only going to give you back what is yours, but I'm actually going to give you back four times the amount. I know that I've wronged people, and I fully intend to make it right. And I want to spend our remaining time laying out some very practical sort of course of action. And maybe you do. I hope that you will. Because I don't want to say, we could be like, okay, you know, put away our, our phones, our tablets, our iPads, let me close my notes, shut my Bible, and we all walk out and say, wow, amazing thing what Zacchaeus did. But I don't think it's there just for Zacchaeus. I think it's there for us. And it causes us to ask ourselves, well, who have I wronged? And maybe the best thing that you and I would do is to make a list and I can assure you, let me give you some encouragement. That's hard to do, but I want to give you some encouragement. I don't care who you are. I can promise you, your list is not going to be as long as the list of Zacchaeus. 
because it basically included everybody in Jericho. But maybe you'd make a list, and maybe you'd think in terms of categories. Maybe you'd think, maybe you'd start right with your own family, and you'd say, is there anything that I have said? Is there anything that I've done? And maybe you'd say, what about my spouse, my kids, my parents, my brothers, my sisters, you know, other relatives? Have I wronged anybody? And we would take it beyond that and say, well, you know, all right, so I've thought in terms of my family. What about my friends? What about current friends that I have or, or former friends that I have? And maybe when you really think about that, maybe what you say is this. You say, maybe, I mean, when you think about it more deeply, maybe the friendship is not intact anymore because of something that I did. Maybe I'm the one that sabotaged the friendship. Is there people that I work with? Just make a list. Is there somebody here in the church? Please don't approach it glibly. Give it serious thought. Ask yourself, who have I wronged? And then take it out beyond that and say, all right, and this is not, again, it's not easy. This is not for the faint-hearted, I'm just telling you. How did I hurt them? Maybe you'll want to ask God to help you think about something that you ordinarily avoid thinking about. Is it something that I said to them? Is it something that I did? Did I use humor in a way that made me look good, but it hurt them at their expense? Have my needs, what about my desires, my ideas, so dominated the friendship or the relationship that my own selfishness has left them feeling unimportant and insecure? This is not easy. This is not easy. It's not easy because you and I want to live our lives and pretend as though we have never hurt anybody. We just sort of pick up and go about it. And we can't do that. And we move our course of action even out a little bit beyond that. So we've got our list. This is who I've hurt, and this is how I've hurt them. But now we ask ourselves, seriously, am I willing to make things right? And, and honesty is crucial right here. You see, it's very, very much, you know, intrusive, painful to just make a list. This is who I hurt, and this is how I hurt them than to take this course of action. Maybe you've created a list and you're going to be honest with God and you're going to be honest with yourself and ask, I know what I should do, but am I willing to make things right? And just maybe, again, if you want to get all over this, and I hope that you will, maybe you'll write out beside your name, yes, I'm willing. I will do it. I will make things right. Or again, because honesty is crucial. Or no. Not yet. I'm not ready. I won't do it now. Numbers 5, 6, and 7 says this. When a man or woman wrongs another in any way, make full restitution for his wrong and add one-fifth to it. And when you look at Zacchaeus, he actually goes way beyond this. So, who, how, am I willing, yes or no, and if we just keep moving forward, I go to them, I ask for their forgiveness, and I ask that we can make things right. And when we go, and it's not easy, we leave behind our excuses, we leave behind our explanations for why we did it and our justification, and we simply say, I was wrong, I was wrong, and I'm sincerely sorry. Will you forgive me? See, we have a tendency, I know I do, I can't speak for you. You know, we want to say, hey, I, I did this, but, you know, I did this because, you know, if you hadn't have done what you did, I certainly wouldn't have done what I did. Hey, you know, I was having a bad day, bad year, bad, you know, bad month, bad, you know, and no, no, none of that. I wronged you. I'm sorry. I want to make things right. Some of you, uh, and I brought this in, it just takes a moment. Um, I, I want to show you, any of you happened, I didn't see it when it initially happened. I only saw a video after it happened. Any of you see what happened with the most recent Miss Universe contest? Where it's like, hey, it's her. It, no, it's not her. And, you know, it, it's her. And, that, you know, that's so, that's so embarrassing. I can remember before I came here uh, to Lakeland, uh, several years ago, I pastored a church south of Jacksonville, east of St. Augustine, and uh, 
there were, you know, there's sort of a raised platform area in the church that I led, and I didn't sit on the platform. I sat on the front row, and this particular morning, it it was time for me to give the talk. So uh, I get up. I've got my Bible. I got my notes, and I just sort of going to run up real quickly up the steps to get, you know, to the podium that was there. What I did not know is that I had not lifted my front foot uh, out enough, and it just sort of got hit on the next step, and I immediately go from running up some steps to on my knees on this area. And uh, I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Hundreds of people, God, night, I'm tripped right here, my backside to the whole crowd. You know, this is real fun. And, and I had this sudden temptation, you know, when everybody sees me there on these steps on my knees, I just want to say, yes, God, yes, and pray. Bless this you know, I, I wanted, but they never would have heard me anyhow because of the laughter. Um, but I thought, man, that was, that was several hundred people. But this actually happened like hundreds and thousands, maybe millions. Take a look, not just at what happened, but what happened later when a guy said, I hurt you publicly, therefore I'm going to apologize. Take a look. One of you is about to become our new Miss Universe. If for any reason she is unable to fulfill her duties, the first runner-up will take her place. Good luck to both of you. Miss Universe 2015 is... to apologize. The first runner-up is Colombia. Thank you for coming. No. You know. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it, it, you know, you're the one person. You, you're the one person that I really wanted to talk to. Because of a mistake I made, I cast you into a spotlight, a place that I, that I never intended to that I would not want to happen to anybody. I just want to say how sorry I am. 
I, I'm really, I'm, I'm beyond sorry for what happened that night and that it, that it was you. Really, at the end of the day, you know, I hope we walk away from here uh, with something special. Wow, what about that? You know, the first time I saw that, I had two thoughts. I'd hate to be the guy that had to go take those flowers in that crowd. No, I'm not kidding. Give them here. Give, give them back. And then I thought, man, you take a guy that has fame and notoriety and money, and nobody had forced him to do that. But he felt like he wronged somebody unintentionally, but he wronged them, and he wanted to make things right. No explanations, no justification. I was wrong, and I'm sincerely sorry. Are there any exceptions? There are. On some occasions, it would not be wise or safe to try to reestablish a relationship. Like, to go back, it just, you know, it wouldn't be healthy, maybe it wouldn't even be safe, and it'd just be, okay, in my heart, I'll just leave this, God knows my heart, and, you know, I, but don't take that as the easy road if it's something that can happen personally. And, and again, sometimes you may need to get some advice, maybe a Christian counselor or somebody that can say, hey, you know, do this from your heart, but it would not be wise or safe to reestablish a relationship. Maybe you're thinking, well, what if I do all of that and they don't accept my apology? Well, that's not up to you. That's up to them. Now, how did Jesus, how did Jesus react to the reaction of Zacchaeus? This is, this is verse 9, not on the screen. It's a part of verse 9 there in that chapter. It's like Zacchaeus, it's like in a moment of, uh, of drama, it's like he stands up. You heard, you know, half my possessions. Give to the poor. Right here, right now, I'm going on record. Everybody hear me, Jesus, you heard me. I'm going on record, and everybody I've cheated, giving it back, not just what I took from them, but four times as much. And when Jesus saw that, Jesus had an announcement of his own to make. And Jesus stood up, and he looked at Zacchaeus, and this is what he said. Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. Salvation has come to your house. You know, probably because Jesus wanted to encourage him, you know, short in stature. Hey, big boy, salvation has come to your house. See, incredible things always happen. When you welcome Jesus into your house. And maybe some of you need to do that today. Maybe, maybe you need to take step three that we've talked about. You know, anybody that we've wronged, make things right. And you need to just set that aside temporarily because the thing you need to deal with most right here, right now, is receiving Jesus, inviting Jesus into your house, asking Jesus to come into your life. Because anytime somebody does that, amazing, powerful, supernatural things happen. And I'm happy to tell you that Jesus is still taking upon himself all of our uncleanness because he loves us. And you may say, well, I know that he can forgive others, but what about me? Listen, doesn't matter who you, who you are, what you've done, or who you've done it with. Jesus says, I will forgive you. I'll take your junk, your sin, your uncleanness upon myself. I love you that much. And I died in your place to forgive you. So for some of you, that's the most important decision. Others of you, you've already done that, and for you it's just like, all right, it's not going to be easy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Who have I wronged? What have I done? Am I really willing seriously to forgive them? And if so, I'm going to go. I'm going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to make things right. And you do so with the confidence that if you go, God will go with you, and he will help you. And that very, very thing, just by taking that step, this third step, and we'll talk about the fourth and final one next weekend, and you will not want to miss that. But that may be the very thing that helps you to become unstuck, where you say, wow, I, I didn't know what it was, but now I get it. This is what's been holding me back. I'm going to make things right with the people that I have wronged. Would you stand for a closing prayer? Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. How many of you would say this morning, you know what I need to do? My first step is to invite Jesus to come into my house. I want to invite Jesus to come into my life, to take all of my sin, all of my uncleanness upon himself, to forgive me and to restore me and give me a brand new start. If that's you, would you just heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but would you just lift your hand and say, pray for me. I want to receive Christ into my life right here, right now, today. You just lift your hand real high. Let me pray for you.
All right. Others of you would say, you know, the step that I need to take, I need to go to people. I need, I've got some people that I've wronged and I need to go. And I know it's not going to be easy. I'm not going to be, you know, kid myself, self-delusional and say this is going to be an easy thing to do because it will not. But I know it's the right thing to do. Therefore, I will do it. And I do so in the confidence that God will go with me. And Pastor Jeff, will you just pray for me? I've got to do it. I know I've got to do it. And I will if God will help me. If that's you, would you lift your hand and let me just pray for you. Father, I just ask for those that lifted their hand and those that want to receive you into their house, into their life today. I know that you will come in and you will forgive them and you will restore them and you'll change their life. What a defining day that was for Zacchaeus and what a defining day it will be for every person here that lifted their hand. And God, we confess to you that we're sinners and we're in need of your grace and your forgiveness. And God, for all of us that have to go to somebody, and maybe it's more than one, maybe it's half a dozen, maybe it's longer, the list is longer than that. God, if you'll go with us, we'll do it. We'll make things right with the people that we have wronged and believe that you will honor it and that you will bless it because it's in cooperation with what you would really want us to do. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you, everybody. Have a great week.